Hey guys, great news. Thanks to our partner Beta, this week we're giving away Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scales. This scale has high accuracy and full body composition. Body Plus includes coaches, rewards, and it automatically sends all of your data to the free HealthMate app. With tools at hand such as trend screens and nutrition tracking, the Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scale is the perfect way for users to track and achieve their weight loss goals. Enter this week's giveaway at www.mission.org giveaway for a chance to win a free Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scale. Or if you want to purchase, go directly to www.withings.com and enter Mission Daily 20 to get 20% off the Withings Body Plus Smart Scale. This code is only valid on withings.com or visit your nearby beta store. Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Stephanie sits down with Karen Tuxen Bettman, Program Manager at Google. Karen has been with Google since early 2008 and has worked on the Google Earth Outreach team, helping nonprofit and public benefit organizations use Google's mapping tools for their work. Karen's background includes work in GIS, Geographic Information Systems, and Remote Sensing Technologies. Since joining Google, she has trained numerous nonprofits to use the Street View Tracker Backpack to collect imagery of the ecosystems they are working to conserve. More recently, she has led the effort at Google to measure air quality using Street View cars through a partnership with the Environmental Defense Fund. On today's episode, Stephanie and Karen sit down to discuss how she is using Google Maps to help nonprofits and public benefits around the world, and why mapping tools are a huge multiplier for these organizations to tell their story. Karen, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. How's it going? It's going great. Does it feel weird to be interviewed by someone that you used to work with? <laughs> no, people are always moving on and doing cool things. And I've never met somebody at Google that hasn't gone on to something equally incredible and interesting and sometimes very different like this. So. Yes. Yeah, very different. So yeah. for background for everyone, Karen and I worked together when I was in Geo at Google and Karen worked for the Geo for Good team. So Karen, if someone asked you, what do you do? What do you say? I say that I work for a team at Google within the Google Maps division. Internally, we call that geo, uh, like as in geographic. Uh, I work for the Google Maps or geo division, helping public benefit groups around the world use mapping tools to make the world a better place for positive change, for social and environmental impact. Awesome. So what is an example of that, allowing other people to use maps? So many people may have heard the term maps are power. Maps mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And if you can communicate something about a project or you can communicate something about the world, society, the environment, the planet, many times you need a map. You need to show what's happening, where it's happening. You need to potentially show changes over time. So mapping tools have a huge they have a huge multiplier for environmental and social nonprofit organizations to tell their story. My director says that seeing is believing. And if you can see it on a map and you can understand what's happening, it really changes the game for a lot of people. Whether it's a small grassroots nonprofit or a big, you know, giant multinational NGO, whether it's a university scientist doing research or even an individual wanting to tell a story, it's these kinds of users or these kinds of people, these kinds of groups that uh, oftentimes need maps. So we try to help them to do that uh, with our tools. So yeah, that's what's so different. When I first joined 
Geo. And I was just thinking, this is just all about making maps, making some money, street view. And then I heard of Geo for Good. And I was like, this feels very different. We're not focused on money. We're focused on just helping the world and Mm -hmm. really changing the world and solving the biggest problems. How do you figure out which problems you want to tackle? Because it feels like there's a million. You know, we're always hearing climate change. And I mean, you're always getting bombarded with Mm -hmm. different issues. So how do you all go about picking which ones you want to focus on each year? That is a good question that we get a lot, both from people outside of Google and inside, right? We're always talking about how we can prioritize the requests that come from inside and outside of Google. And, you know, over time, we've worked out a formula that we like to use. And we use it all the time to really help us figure out what will have the most impact in the world. And the formula is very simple. It's it's X plus Y equals Z. Yep. Okay. <laughs> and X is what Google does. So if Google and in my role, Geo, can do something. Now that something has to be very Google specific, Geo specific. It should be something that Google is bringing that is unique. Not just what any, any company or any group can do. Yep. They need our help. The Y is what the person or the group outside of Google brings. So if Geo, if Google brings X, then somebody outside or the partner, like the NGO, nonprofit partner, will bring Y. And that's subject matter expertise. We're not the experts on the ground. We don't know what's happening out there in the world for the most part. It's the NGOs on the ground in different countries or in a specific location that really understands the issues. So they bring that subject matter expertise. They bring the science and the science expertise. Sometimes they bring additional funding so that they can really help it scale without us. And then together we have Z impact. Like what is that impact? We should define that. What are we, what are we going for? And usually our success measures are the nonprofit or the partner's success metrics. What is social and environmental impact, positive change on the ground? Got it. That's very cool. Being able to partner with different organizations, help their cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure they're really glad you guys are involved. With yeah, that. thanks. It's really fun. And, and as an environmental scientist by training, my background's in environmental science and mapping. It's been a dream because I've been able to work not just with one issue or one nonprofit, but a whole variety of them. So yeah, that's cool. So what was your first job when we're talking about your background a bit? Even first job out of high school or where is Karen from? Well, I'm from Stockton, California, which is, you know, a pretty large city in California, but it's right in the middle of the state. It's, you know, back in the late 80s when when I grew up there, it was still very much as it is today in that it's semi-metropolitan, but it's also semi-agricultural and and it's kind of the epicenter for a lot of California activity coming yep. north and south, east and west. And so what I remember from growing up there are a couple of things. I remember a lot of mixed use in the city. You have people in the city, you have people working on the farms. You have a lot of, at times, great air where you have the Delta breeze coming in, but you have also bad air pollution, which my current project today has kind of informed that. So yeah, I grew up there. My first job was, I I did some, some summer work with a little nonprofit called the Delta Keeper, which is actually part of a very large nonprofit called the Waterkeeper Alliance. Mm-hmm. All over the U.S. and some around the world, there are these local watchdogs, these NGOs that keep a, a watch on the rivers and the estuaries and the bays, helping to make sure that 
purposeful or inadvertent pollution doesn't happen. And so I was basically doing some work with them, collecting water samples and geotagging, you know, leftover oil drums and things like that. So it's fun. Yeah, it got, it, it was really fun. It outside, got, it got me outside. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That sounds like a dream job for what, 18 years old? Was that right out of mm-hmm. high school? That, yes, that was right after my freshman year of college. Yeah. Oh, got it. Cool. And then what did you move into after that? Besides odd jobs at school, Oh, um, what kind of odd jobs? Oh, the convenience store. 7-Eleven? Oh, well, <laughs> I went to Carnegie Mellon and there was this little uh, convenience store called Entropy, okay. which is an uh, engineering joke. It was called Entropy because it stayed open until 2 a.m. I worked the the late shift. <laughs> and so Ooh. you'd get all the people who wanted to keep the Entropy going oh, and gosh. come in for Smarties <laughs> and Coca-Cola and all that stuff. So I worked that for about a got a half of a year before my grade started slipping. And then I got smart and <laughs> <laughs> I can't do but, this anymore. Yeah. Right. Um, and then I did some filing in the in the admin world and gave out mm-hmm. like I gave campus tours, Ooh. things like that. So, Fun. yeah. And then did that bring you to Google right after? No. So it's a long story, but <laughs> I should say that I didn't do too well for a year or two in my grades. So I asked people, I was like, well, you know, what are some good majors to help me kind of come out of this slump. And I got some good advice and I found economics, Mm -hmm. which I love economics. I don't do a lot of economics today, but I found economics and economics undergrad is such a fun major because you're learning kind of the basics. And if you have a good teachers, it really makes it fun. And that's what introduced me to environmental economics and environmental policy. And that's what I majored in economics and environmental policy. And everything changed as soon as I found that. Along the way, I found one class which changed my life direction. The class is GIS, mm-hmm. Geographic Information Systems. Yep. Is and that G- those codes that people tag things to? No, okay. no. GIS is basically database for maps, right? Okay. It's basically an information system for maps. So it's taking map data, creating beautiful maps like cartography, mm-hmm. but there's all this data behind you know, whether that the roads or the watershed or the soil samples or whatever you're making a map of, that you can do a lot of spatial statistics and you can do spatial analysis with. And so I was able to take my environmental and public policy and even economics interest and apply it visually to maps. And I grew up loving maps. I see on the wall here in your studio, you have maps of California, of the US, and they draw your eyes. You just wanna go look at them. You wanna find a new place you've never been or look at the places you're Mm -hmm. familiar with. So I've always loved maps. I think a lot of people in the world can say that. And so GIS was an eye-opener for me because it was basically doing computer science and environmental policy and science in map form. And so it was, it completely changed the game. And from there I went out and I was like, I went out into the world and I got a job doing GIS. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And do you ever still mingle with that now? Or is that just in the past, you Sometimes. had fun with it? <laughs> Sometimes. I mean, I think any GIS specialist who stays in the field for 10 to 15 years, as I have, at some point you kind of start managing people who do yeah. it. And yeah. so you, you you don't get to do it as much, yeah. which is kind of sad. I'm, you know, I think that's a technical field. That's sometimes how it is. So we'll see. Some may, someday I might go back and, you know, get my hands dirty again. But yeah. I love the few hours a year I get to do it. Yeah. Now, so do you have any so this is a common theme that we've heard where, you know, as you rise through the ranks and you get more experience, you actually lose touch with what you what got you started all like to begin with you have advice for people like that who are maybe struggling right now with like, hey, I started in this job because I wanted to do that, but now I manage a team of 50. 
and I'm just telling them how to do it, but I actually can't play around with it anymore. I think my advice is that it's never too late to go in reverse, right? I have seen people at Google decide they don't want to be a manager anymore and they bow out gracefully in a way that doesn't hurt the team. They have supportive managers that support that, of course. And so it keeps them happy and doing what they want to do in their career. And quite frankly, if you have happy people, you have productive people. And if you have productive people, you know, everybody's better off for it and so, and happy. But I will say that every time I, kind of lament the fact that I don't get my hands dirty all the time with GIS, for example, I get so excited that I, part of my job now is talking to people and advising people and working with people. And I really cherish that a lot. And I know that if I went back into the more hands-on, that happens to be more, you know, a solo individual working environment, which Mm -hmm. I used to thrive more on, but now with more experience, I think I thrive more on the collaborative format. Yep. So it's it's a catch-22, I guess. Yeah, yeah <laughs> no, I agree. But I think yeah. that's good advice that not everyone's going to have the same path and you can either get there and realize that maybe you don't want the path that everyone else is taking mm-hmm. or just see both sides of it and be like, well, I did have that life, but I also like this one too. Yeah. So that's cool. So you're talking about your current project now. What is your current project? Yeah, what are you working on? So right now, um, a big chunk of my time is spent on a project that I started about five or six years ago called Project Airview. And Project Airview, as you can kind of maybe tell by the name, is about air quality. And it's about giving a view into air quality. If I had to state my uh, mission of the project, it would be to create air quality maps for every city and town in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that cities and people have information to change everyday lives and the health of the health of the world. 90% of the world live in places on the planet that World Health Organization says are below healthy standards. Mm -hmm. 90%, over 90%, I think it's like 91 or 92%. Oftentimes people think that it's all the people live in kind of countries with dirtier, the dirtiest air. Mm -hmm. And Many of them do. Most of them do. There are highly populated countries like China, like India that have, unfortunately, very dirty air. But there are places all over the rest of the world that also have pockets of polluted air. And a lot of times that's because of city, city dwelling. And most of the population do live in cities and that's only going to grow over time. And as that grows, the pollution issue is going to get worse. At the same time, cities want it, they want solutions. They want to figure out how to do it, but they can't without some baseline. They can't without knowing what the neighborhood air quality is. You know, we, we know walking around in a neighborhood that an air quality is different on, you know, down, down by the busiest streets or mm-hmm. down by the freeway than it is away from the busiest street, away from the shopping district. And a lot of that has to do with cars. In some cases, it has to do with, you know, being near the ocean so that you got a lot of wind rolling it through. But there's differences in different neighborhoods. And it's important that people know what those differences are, not just to help direct their route, but so that they can go to City Hall and and advocate for change. And cities want to help. They want to have a thriving population, but they don't have the data or sometimes they don't have the resources to get started. So a couple of years ago, we started thinking about how we could help. The Environmental Defense Fund came to us and sat us down and said, will you help us with a small pilot project? We said yes. And that's grown into 
about God, 10 to 15 cars over the last few years. Street view cars. Street view cars. Yep. Yes, street view cars. So most people have heard of street view, not everyone, but some people have heard of street view where they, it takes 360 degree imagery and that data is imported into Google Maps so people can find their way to you know, a restaurant or, or whatnot. And Google uses that data to also help build accurate maps. Yeah, which a lot of people actually don't know. Whenever I told people that I work with Street View, they're like, oh, that's nice to have images on the maps. I'm like, actually, it kind of powers the entire map. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it gives that ground truth, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So it's not not everything is based off of Street View, but a lot of it is. And, and it really helps that ground truth to know, is there a left turn lane? Yes. You know, that kind of thing. So absolutely. You know, over the last five years or something, we've now transitioned a tiny subfleet of the Street View fleet into an environmental sensing platform where we've put air quality sensors on these Street View cars. And uh, I have to hand it to the Street View team and the leadership on the Street View team because yeah. they gave us basically dedicated cars yes. to do this with. The cars are not not doing it for imagery. They're only doing it for air quality collection. And it, we know it was this massive multi-year experiment to find out, does this work? Can mm -hmm. you can you collect quali high quality data from Street View cars? And it turns out you can. Mm -hmm. We work with scientists, we work with EDF, we work with a startup based in San Francisco called Aclima, a bunch of different partners, and we, f we figured out that it, was, that it was possible. And we've published a few maps already, we've shared the data with researchers, uh, and we just last year announced that we're going to be expanding it to 50 cars all mm -hmm. over the world, so not just California, Yep. Uh, we started in California because we wanted to calibrate the data, keep the cars close. But now we feel com confident enough Sending to them out. go outside <laughs> yeah. into the wild, <laughs> into the rest of the world. So, that's great. So yeah. have you seen any change happen with the cities that you are doing the pilot test with? Like what kind of data do you give them? Is it packaged up for them? And they're like, here's what it looks like. And here's some actions you can take. Or what do you see happening now that some cities, five, I guess, have data? At the moment, um, we've been sharing mo the data mostly with researchers, scientific researchers, who have done uh, some amazing groundbreaking research with it. The first kind of test city was in Oakland, California, and we worked with a professor at University of Texas in Austin named Joshua Apte, and he led a whole team of scientists and published a paper a couple years ago that published a map of different parts of, of Oakland. And then... EDF worked with Kaiser Permanente. Kaiser Permanente compared it with some of their patient records and found that this hyper-local, this really high-resolution air quality data actually was correlated with patient records and instances of, of heart disease or <laughs> cardiovascular disease in, in the elderly. And so both of these studies were peer-reviewed and published in academic journals. But you know, more importantly, I think for all of us who aren't who don't read scientific journals every day, yeah. it's on EDF's website. And people have started using that to make decisions. EDF partnered with a group called West Oakland Environmental Indicators Project, mm -hmm. um, which is a group that has been working to fight air pollution in West Oakland for decades. And they're an environmental justice group working to for, for environmental equality in that, in that neighborhood, in that region. And they're a model for all of California, all of the world, using this hyper-local data to make decisions. There's another project that this air quality data will feed into and that is a project where we are taking environmental information and packaging it up specifically mm -hmm. for cities around the world. Yep. That project is called Environmental Insights Explorer. Everybody can find that at g.co slash environmental insights. And today, if you go there, there's five cities. We're planning on expanding it to many, many more. But 
what's amazing about the site today is that you can go there and for the few beta early adopter cities that we have launched there, you can find how much carbon emissions are being emitted from transportation, like oh, cool. from all the cars on the road, yep. all the buses, all the people who are on bikes that are not emitting carbon, you know, that kind yep. of thing. You can also find the same information for how much carbon is coming from buildings. The way we calculate that is that we, we use our Google Maps data. So the, the maps data that you see when you're driving to work and you look at traffic, that traffic data, we've computed, added to it, these carbon emission factors that translate that traffic data into how much emissions data is being emitted. We aggregate it so that it's for the whole year, for the whole city, and then a city like Oakland or a city like Mountain View or any city around the world can then look at this data and track year over year. Did my EV vehicle incentive work? Are people, more people, I just put bike lanes in, are more people biking now? Mm -hmm. So these kinds of insights, data insights, are really valuable to cities because they're able to then make decisions and then see the effect of those decisions year over year. Yep. Yeah, that's uh, something we're tackling right now is talking about there's all this data that's always been around to solve a lot of these problems. And it seems like we're just now cracking it yeah. or putting it in a readable format. I mean, one thing I really liked that your team always did was everything you worked on, you put it in really nice, easy to understand dashboards and stuff that anyone can play around with, internal and external to Google, and actually understand what's going on, which... I don't know if that's because your team thinks differently, but I definitely didn't see all teams always doing it that way. Well, I think there are teams at Google and other you know, technology companies around the world that are trying to uh, meet the most users where they are, right? Mm -hmm. So they build tools and products and apps that the majority of, of users on a smartphone or whatnot can access and download and use or whatnot. I think the difference of, for our team is that we usually have a very narrow, specific yep. change maker or group of change makers in mind. Mm -hmm. And we, of course, do lots of user research and try to find out what do cities need and what do networks of cities need to help you know, drive adoption of cities as well. And we really, we partner with them. We don't just interview them, which mm -hmm. we do, but we partner with them. And we, it's a long-term partnership so that we can kind of adapt these dashboards and these tools. Yep to best address the problem. Yeah, basically fitting yeah. your customer yeah. or partner. That's, yeah. yeah, that's a really good idea. So you've worked at Google a while. Mm -hmm. How long have you been at Google? 11 years. Okay, so I'm sure you have some epic stories from either working with Street View, working on your team. Do you have any that come to mind? Because I know you've done a ton of stuff that I know yes. about, but I think our audience would like to hear. Yeah, so you and I crossed paths at Google because we both were um, doing Street View work, right? Yep. Okay, so... You know some of the projects I've done, yes. but I can go over some of my favorites. So I would say that the very first, I'll back up and say that I have been working on Street View projects before the air quality project for many years. And I was one of the first to have the idea of, let's not just go out and capture Street View of the streets and trails, which people were starting to do, right? Mm -hmm. To capture trails and capture universities and amusement yeah. parks and things like that. I said, let's go and, and collect it of rivers and let's go to the middle of the Amazon, mm -hmm. right? So our very first partner, our nonprofit partner that we engaged very heavily with and actually trained them to collect it themselves was a nonprofit based in Brazil, a Brazilian nonprofit called, uh, I'm, I'm gonna 
not be able to say the Portuguese. <laughs> you can give your best shot. <laughs> but it translates in English to the Amazonas, which is okay. the state of Amazonas. It's Amazonas Sustainable Foundation. Mm-hmm. And they do a lot of different work. But what one of the things they did was that they helped the government, the state of Amazonas, run the reserve program or the re- reserve um, network uh, of, of protected areas in the state of Amazonas in Brazil. And they worked with communities that lived in these reserves mm-hmm. all over Brazil, all over the state of Amazonas. And what's more is that they helped investors who wanted to help these communities preserve the land. They helped them stay afloat. The nonprofit helped them build management plans for the next 50 years. Because the thing about Brazil is that, you know, there's a lot of deforestation going on. And what they find is that the areas where indigenous people live or riverine communities live, they don't cut down the forest as quickly. So they're basically trying to help keep that true. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to help incentivize these communities to not cut down the forest. And Mm -hmm. so this nonprofit was helping to do that, but they had so much trouble describing to donors and to the world what this place looked like, who these people were, the fact that the investment money was going to schools and teleclinics Mm -hmm. and just amazing community services. And so they said, Google, can you come help us? And so I, I met them at one of our workshops and I went to them and I said, can we help this nonprofit take street view imagery of the river of the Rio Negro, yep. the Amazon River, the tributaries, and these five communities on the river. And so we didn't have the trekker then. Oh yeah. So maybe explain a trekker for anyone who doesn't okay. know. So the trekker is basically taking the equipment, the camera equipment that's on top of the car, and putting it on a backpack and you hike just like you would any kind of backpacking backpack. And it used to be 70 pounds, right? The first version, wasn't it? I don't remember. Because I remember- It's possible. I tried out the first version and then I tried out the second. I was like, ooh, I don't know how anyone was able to carry that backpack beforehand. And I'm glad that no one has to anymore. Yeah, no one does anymore. That's right. So yeah, so we basically, before the Trekker was even invented, there was a Street View trike. And the trike had the same kind of camera on top of it as the car did. And so because the Trekker didn't exist, we literally mounted the trike on top of an Amazon river boat. And so you see this trike going down the river, taking photos just like it would if somebody was pedaling. And then the handy part was that we then we just moved the trike to the communities Mm -hmm. and then pedaled around the communities. Sounds easy, right? Well, the problem is a lot of these communities don't have docks. Mm -hmm. So we had to make with help of like 10 to 20 community members to help, we had to make, they would get two by fours and we like made these little ramps and you had these really strong men just like heave this thing up and then slowly let it down. And I mean, this is a lot of money out in the middle of the Amazon. And we'd only, we only have one. Like, what if it <laughs> fell off? It I have these pictures of like one of the two by fours bowing and like people sinking in the mud, you know, by the river's edge. And you're, you know, you're subject to the tides. And oh my gosh, it was just, there's, there's like anacondas in the water or some kind of big giant snakes, which oh my of course gosh. I'm worried about, but none of them are. Were you on the boat? Yeah. Who was, I was steering it? Well, this is when it's kind of parked, but they, okay. we had, we had people who knew where they were who going to drive it. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't um, Karen no, driving it was not the boat. <laughs> no, 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 no. And so, but I was basically over like chewing on my fingernails yeah. as this thing was being loaded off the, the roof. And then they would pedal around the community and, and we'd go on and. And I think one of the most amazing thing about that was 
before we went into the communities, of course, they were all kind of prepped for this. But then we had a community meeting and a little kind of convening. And a lot of times the community members themselves pedaled the bike around and just listening to their questions. Everything was translated in real time just by our partners in the nonprofit and just listening to their questions. A lot of people said, "Okay, do I have to put makeup on? And I'm like, no, no, you know, any if you're in it, your face will be blurred. And she was like, oh, can can I can I not be blurred (laughs) or or should I paint my house? And it was just really fun, like just listening, you know, to them. And they got really excited about it. And I know that the nonprofit also went back and showed the community members once it was published. Mm-hmm. And so that was a really fun time. And I'll never forget it because it was the first one Yep, that started kind of a, a slew of, of excitement from other nonprofits. And yeah. we worked with the Charles Darwin Foundation in the Galapagos Islands where we collected underwater, swam with seals and up on the. You put you a know. camera underwater. So we didn't put the camera underwater, okay. but we worked with a, a, another nonprofit mm-hmm. who built an underwater kind of scooter. Okay. Uh, not that goes along the floor, but that basically has a little motor and they can just push it in the water. Okay. And they're able to collect, you know, everything from the Great Barrier Reef in Australia to uh, amazing, you know, pristine coral reefs in Palau and Indonesia and other places. For the Galapagos, they were able to collect imagery of sea lions and just like swimming with sea lions. Oh, cool. And they were very curious about yeah. the street view uh, camera under <laughs> under the water. But yeah, we were, uh, we, so we went to the Galapagos. We worked with Polar Bears International up in the Arctic. And that was a fun time because it was the coldest that the street view trekker had ever been at that time. Mm-hmm. Okay, Since then, it's gone even further north in the Arctic. Yep. But at the time, it was, you know, I learned that Negative 30 is where Celsius and Fahrenheit equalize. And so I just knew that that was the one temperature to be fearful of when it comes to the trekker. But yeah, we just left the trekker out there all night and it, you know, needed some time. Let's just say a little blanket love in the morning to get it up to temperature. But it, it would turn on after it warmed up. It would turn on and it worked great. And what imagery did you capture when you were up there or what was your goal when you were up there? Our goal was, so the Polar Bears International um, nonprofit came to us and said that not a lot of people get to come up to see the polar bears. It's a hard trip. It's far. It's expensive for a lot of different reasons. People need to see polar bears while they're here Mm -hmm. because we're in this urgent climate crisis. They said, we don't just want to tell the story about polar bears, though. The real story is all about the sea ice and this ecosystem of Arctic sea ice that the polar bears rely on and the whole world in effect relies on and because when it melts it's going to cause sea level rise etc cetera, etc cetera. so they were just like it's very hard to tell that story if you've seen it it's yeah. easier and nothing replaces going to a place that's clear of mm-hmm. course being able to see it especially in 360 and look around and move down a path so to speak in street view it really it really does bring some of that experience to life yeah, so we went up there and a partner that PBI, Polar Bears International, partners with called Frontiers North, they have tundra buggies. Mm-hmm. And they actually donate a, a tundra buggy to PBI every year to do virtual school lessons to oh, kids cool. around the world. So yeah. you can, like, classrooms can actually have a video conference with this tundra buggy way up in the Arctic during polar bear season That's and awesome. learn all about polar bears, see them in the, with the camera. What they wanted to do with Street View was put it on Google Maps because a lot of eyeballs go there and they wanted Mm -hmm. to talk about it uh, even more. So we mounted the Trekker, the Street View backpack, on 
the front left corner of the tundra buggy. Mm -hmm. And of course, just going up there is a scary thing because if you slip, you will not die, but you will be in harm's way. If uh, there's a polar bear nearby, you, might you die. will die. You might die. Yeah. So there was I like always, your answer. You will die. Yeah, you will. You will die. I mean, you know, unless there's somebody there that's protecting you. Or they're slower than you. Or they're, they're much farther away and you yeah. can get up. Yeah. It's, oh, I meant the person. Oh, this. <laughs> good point. Good point. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're slower than me. Then. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Just kidding. That's so, a little mean. <laughs> yeah. No, no. But uh, it was, that was really amazing. And the thing about taking street view imagery of polar bears is that as soon as you turn the camera off, the polar bear comes up to you. Yep. Right. That's every with time. everything. Yep. With everything. Yeah. So every good picture you yep. want. <laughs> so if you look at the behind the scenes video, you can see, oh my gosh, look at this. The street view imagery, must, yep. they must be so up close and personal because we have video footage of like a lot of the behind the scenes after filming. But of course, when you were filming and we're driving around and moving the tundra yep. buggy, moving around the tundra, We'd see one and we'd go over kind of close to it. We don't want to bother it, of course, but we go up close to it. Then, you know, they might just go still go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Right. Or another time there was we heard over the radio that, oh, there's two polar bears sparring. And so you can actually see them sparring on street views over the radio. All the other tundra buggies for all the tourists, they yeah. heard it, too. So then they all made a mad dash over there as fast as the tundra yep. buggies go, which is like two miles an hour. But still, by the time we got there, it was like the, the wildlife paparazzi. And so they're also in the photos. So you get you get the good ecotourism experience yeah. through Street View. But more than anything, you hear from the scientists and the nonprofit who are basically um, talking about you know, the climate crisis and the sea ice crisis specifically and why yeah. it's so, such a, such a um, critical piece of it. Yeah. I think that's such an important message too, what you all are doing, because it could really apply anyone, a business owner, someone trying to start something. I mean, seeing is believing. So being able to show someone what you're doing, what you're working on, what effort you're trying to back. I mean, having a picture or a video, even if it's of yourself talking about something, I mean, that changes the game when it comes yep. to anything you're doing. Yep. So that was a good idea to yeah start doing that. Absolutely. I mean, our, our main goal is to help nonprofits tell stories. And so a lot of the places that we've been are all about nonprofits, whether it's Polar Bears International up in the Arctic or Charles Darwin in the Galapagos. Um, another group is Save the Elephants in Kenya. And so we, they basically invited us out to take imagery of, of elephants and not just elephants, but all the other species that live with the elephants. Mm -hmm. And obviously the African elephant poaching crisis is a crisis as well. Yep. And so they really wanted to show this nonprofit Save the Elephants really wanted to show what these amazing majestic creatures I mean, if anyone who goes to Africa and sees an elephant up close and personal will understand how, what a crisis it is, the fact that these amazing animals are poached for their ivory, it's awful. So that was their goal is it's just sharing mm -hmm. beautiful things and important things and important places on our planet. Got it. Yeah. I love that. I always love your stories. Aww. So I'm like, I wish I could hear all of them right now. I know. <laughs> so if we shift a little bit. Mm -hmm. So from working at Google... And this will be the last one because I know you've got meetings coming up oh, or no. else I could just talk all day. Yeah. You've worked under some great leadership before. What do you view as being good leadership? Well, I've been blessed with, at Google, many great leaders and managers. And I will say, I've had one manager, Rebecca Moore. Yep. And she's been my professional mentor and personal mentor for, for many years, 11 years now. A couple of things I've learned from her and learned from other great leaders at Google and other places are there's two things. One is 
optimism and motivation are important, right? If you can give people ambition and confidence around a common vision. I mean, this sounds really basic, but I think a good leader is someone who's optimistic and motivational, mm -hmm. right? They, they motivate people to work hard, you know? And that's yeah. not the same thing as working too much. It yeah. just means working hard and being productive and getting the job done and giving it your all uh, and really caring. And then the other thing is, you know, giving credit where, where credit's due. Like a proud parent would, you know, yeah. kind of embarrass you in a good way, right? <laughs> where you're the best. <laughs> right, where I'm just like, okay, you can stop, you know? So I, I feel like that is, and I've tried to do that because I think that sometimes very uh, ambitious people, giving people credit doesn't come that naturally uh, oftentimes. Even though you're thinking it, even though you appreciate yeah. it, you really need to stop and take the time to tell other people what a great job they did, tell them what a great job they did in front of other people, yeah. like that kind of thing, because that's going to be the next leader, right? And and that's they all they come from everywhere, and so just keeping people propped up and um, sharing that experience with them, mm -hmm. uh, is, I think, is huge. Yep. And I, I I say all this knowing that I have a lot to learn, so I don't Everyone even does. consider myself <laughs> the great leader. But um, ah, I've a lot seen of a lot of things to say I've about seen you. A lot of people who are so good. So. Yeah, I mean, I have heard a lot of good feedback from your management style, so Aww. that's why I think you've probably learned yeah a lot from Rebecca and other people you've worked with. Yeah. But yeah, we do something similar at the mission every Friday, or maybe every other Friday on our team calls. We go around and say what we're gracious for of another team member. Mm -hmm. And you pick out one person and you say what they did that week that either helped you, made you feel good. And it's so nice seeing our team go around because they all have these little mini relationships that I didn't even know existed because, like I said, a lot of them are remote. Yeah. And when they're that's like, that's so true. Yeah, that's like, a great oh, idea. I know. It's, it's so sweet. And we also only have 12 people on our team right now. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what, you guys maybe have like 50 or 60s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. One thing I'll say is that Google as a whole has done a lot of research in organizational development and, and, and management, especially as Google's gone from like a small startup, like 15 plus years ago to, yeah. you know, the big business that they are today. And one of the things I know they found is that management is super important mm -hmm. and happiness and productivity, they rely on good management. And yeah. so just having support for managers as a core piece of the experience in a company or organization is huge, no matter how big or small you are, you know? Yeah. And I just was recently asked to be a manager guru, which is a program at Google, which which helps other managers. And so oh, it's cool. like, you can have that one-on-one -on -one FaceTime yeah. and you can basically, managers can come to me and say, I have an issue, I have a problem. Yeah. I need some help. Like, what would you do? Um, or what should I do? Or yeah. this is what I'm thinking, you know? So. What questions or problems come to you the most that you have to, that you see occurring multiple times? I'm new in the program, so I haven't had official people that I don't know okay. come to me. But I have to say that the people that I do know that come to me, it's usually in the camp of not knowing how to manage peer relationships or manage a, a manager uh, report relationships when they're also peers yep. and friends. Yeah. Um, that's a big deal, especially at a collaborative company with you know, a lot of people, you know, changing roles and somebody who's your peer is, is, is elevated to a manager or things like that. So yep. that kind of transition can be hard. And so I think by, for both the manager and the report, so people yep. coming to me asking about that. And I was afraid of that when I first became a manager yeah. too. So yep. it turned out okay. So I feel like I can give some advice on that. Yeah. I mean, the most recent job at Google, I went, 
under a friend. Yeah, that's Deanna right. Was that's right. My friend beforehand, and I know both of us were like, "Is this gonna work?" And yeah. I think she actually went and talked to you. Yeah, and I was like, that's right. Karen, how do you do this?" Yeah, and yeah. her and I were just trying to figure it out, and it ended up working great. Yeah, because I think yeah, as long as you both have respect for each other and you want the best for each other, and yeah, you also respect that this person is your manager, then it'll go great. Yeah, like if intentions are good and someone cares about you, it usually goes well. Yeah, yeah. It was well, great seeing you. Again. Yeah, it was so fun having you here. Yeah. Hopefully, you'll have to come back for round two or bring yeah. the whole team. We'll do a little Geo for Good round table. That would be uh-huh. fun. Yes. All right, cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Awesome. Thanks, Stephanie. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.